There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Say Why to Drugs. Thanks to everyone who listened to and enjoyed the last episode with author Mike J about mescaline. I'm joined by another special guest for this one, Dr. Oliver Grundman from the University of Florida. Oliver is a clinical assistant professor and has expertise in medicinal chemistry and an interest in research into substance use. In this episode, he tells me all about Kratom, a leaf that grows native in Southeast Asia and has mild stimulant effects in low doses and sedative effects at higher levels. It's been subject to media and governmental scrutiny in the USA recently as the debate rages about whether to regulate it or research it. Without further ado, Oliver Grundman and I say why to Kratom. So I guess the first thing is, can I just get you to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, certainly. Thank you. Uh, so my name is Oliver Grantman. Uh, I got my bachelor's in pharmacy and my pharmacist degree from the University of Münster in Germany. Uh, and then uh, fate kind of got me out uh, to the US, to the University of Florida. And that's where I did my graduate studies in pharmaceutical sciences, primarily with an emphasis on the central nervous system activity of plant extracts. And that's what I graduated in, uh, also primarily uh, on a plant extract from Japan that actually exerted antidepressant and anxiolytic activity. And now I'm clinical associate professor at the University of Florida, director of uh, the online programs in clinical toxicology and pharmaceutical chemistry. And my research focus is on uh, central nervous system activity of natural products. Since 2015, I developed an interest in Kratom, primarily because of the increased report of both uh, toxicity as well as uh, reports of beneficial effects, users reporting benefits of Kratom. Yeah, and so the reason that we first connected is because in my book that I'm writing at the moment, I wanted to write about Kratom, but actually I didn't really know a great deal about it at all. And I came across a paper that you'd written and just kind of cold emailed you um, to ask sort of your advice. And you very kindly offered to read over the chapter. And so it seemed like a great opportunity to um, get your expertise about Kratom. First off, could you just tell us a little bit about what Kratom is? Uh, so, yeah, I 
I actually stumbled across Kratom myself. It was a graduate student of mine that got me interested in it. Kratom itself is a plant uh, or a tree that is native to Southeast Asia. Uh, so Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia. It is a tree that grows close to streams or to uh, waterways. Both the, the tree itself, Mitragina speciosa, uh, as well as the leaf material that is harvested from it, is referred to as kratom. Uh, sometimes natives uh, also refer to it as, as uh, ketom or biak biak, depending on the region where you're in. The kratom is in the same family as coffee. Uh, so there is, uh, when you look at the leaf, actually, it's uh, it's kind of a waxy leaf, relatively sturdy. It's similar to the coffee plant leaf. Uh, so there is some similarity between the two. But in terms of the psychoactive substance, it's not it's not very similar to caffeine. That's right. No, it? it is not. So in uh, Mitragyna speciosa and kratom, the current active ingredients that are really researched very heavily are mitragynin and 7-hydroxymitragynin, among others. And those look structurally much more complex than coffee and caffeine and exert very different effects. Primarily, what is currently focused on is their activity on opioid receptors in a manner that is a little bit different from the activity that classical opioids like morphine or heroin uh, would exert, but they definitely bind to opioid receptors. And what's the appeal of Kratom? Sort of who uses Kratom and why, why do people use it? In a traditional setting in Malaysia, in Thailand or in Indonesia, the, the plant material has been used for centuries in two ways. Uh, so those who are laborers, day laborers, uh, use uh, the fresh leaves. They pick it off the tree, primarily aged uh, leaves, so mature leaves, uh, and chew on it briefly and then they spit it out again, and then it has actually a stimulant effect that is somewhat similar to caffeine, to the effects of caffeine. And they do that throughout the day to basically uh, maintain their stamina because Thailand, Malaysia, these are all countries that are in subtropical areas where you have temperatures and high humidity. You have to be out and about for a long period of time during the day. Uh, but there's also a preparation where you have either fresh leaves or dried leaf material and you prepare it as a decoction, as uh, basically a tea preparation. And you cook it for a longer period of time, you steam it. And then in that form, you have more of an analgesic effect, a pain relieving effect and a sedating effect. So quite the opposite. So uh, we don't necessarily know yet entirely how that works. Uh, why we have this kind of opposite effects, brief exposure, chewing the leaves, you have a stimulant effect, uh, longer exposure time in cooking or boiling the leaves, and you have a more sedative uh, and uh, pain relieving effect. But we know that th these are the two main uses of, of the leaf material. And that's, that's how people often use the substance in places where the plant grows natively, so like Malaysia and places in Southeast Asia. But it's also being used quite widely, or certainly becoming more used, in the US as well, isn't it? Yes. Uh, so we don't know exactly how far this dates back uh, in terms of uh, its usage in the US. Uh, the first reports 
case reports that we have of uh, toxicity of adverse effects, and that is what we primarily have to relay, rely on in the literature, date back to the early 2000s. But we don't know exactly how, for how long it has been used prior to that by Quartum users. We're uncertain about how far it dates back. But in the US, and that's where one of our studies was looking at and some follow-up studies to that are being conducted based on a survey that we conducted in 2000. Uh, I have to think about it, 2016, I think it was, was looking at about 8,000 current Kratom users uh, that were using Kratom in various doses and uh, also for what purposes. And we determined kind of four major purposes. Uh, one is purpose of using Kratom to mitigate opioid or illicit drug uh, withdrawal symptoms. So not necessarily only opioids, but also other illicit drugs that can be amphetamines, that can be benzodiazepines or other drugs to which somebody developed a substance use disorder. Then the second category was uh, to mitigate withdrawal symptoms from a prescription drug. Uh, so that could be, in contrast to heroin, could be to a prescription drug such as uh, an antidepressant, to which we know we can also develop a dependence, as well as to a prescription opioid. Uh, and then we had two other categories. One was to self-treat uh, acute or chronic pain. Uh, and the last category was for self-treatment of an emotional or mental uh, disorder, no matter if it was diagnosed or not diagnosed. Uh, and a majority of folks in this survey were actually using it for the self-treatment of acute or chronic pain or for a mental or an emotional disorder, no matter if that was diagnosed or not diagnosed. So what about sort of recreational use? Do people just use it for the intoxication effect? There were people who were using it for that purpose, uh, and that was not necessarily something that we looked at in our survey, but it was done in other surveys. And that is obviously something if, if somebody wants to get high, so to say, on Kratom, that is a possibility. One limiting factor with Kratom is that it is a whole leaf, basically. It's just the dried leaf that is being crushed and powdered. Uh, so you cannot inject it. And hence, the only way to really use it is to ingest it. Uh, to either brew a tea out of it or dissolve the powder into a sludge and dissolve it into a tea uh, or make it with orange juice to avoid the bitter taste because it's not very tasty, and then ingest it. Getting high on it, uh, there are definitely case reports that somebody was intoxicated with it, um, that they showed signs of intoxication, either of the stimulant kind or of the more sedative opioid-like kind. But you need to have significant amounts in your system. Uh, for a majority of people, it leads to vomiting, nausea, vomiting, uh, or gastrointestinal symptoms before they reach that high, so to say. So it is not very common to reach that high of a concentration, blood concentration of either mitragynin or 7-hydroxymitragynin. Well, the next question I was going to ask you was about the intoxication effects, and I think we've already covered it a little bit. I'm right in thinking that intoxication onset occurs sort of 15 minutes to half an hour after a person's consumed it, can last for quite a while, sort of four to six hours potentially. And at small doses, we get this kind of caffeine-like 
stimulant effect and at higher doses we get something more akin to an an opiate. Do we know much more about what intoxication on Kratom is like? From user reports, uh, we know that the high that is achieved uh, when somebody wants to get the same high that they expect to get from classical opioids like morphine or heroin, that kind of sedative, more relaxing, chilling high uh, that one would expect to get from other opioids, they would prefer to rather stick to heroin or morphine than to switch to kratom. That has been shown by other researchers that have looked at that particular population of substance users who used kratom and also used heroin or morphine and compared the two. And it was definitely not preferred by those users. Uh, instead, actually, they used it also as a mitigation strategy to reduce the heroin or substance use disorder consumption, basically. So it doesn't provide the same high. It does provide a somewhat relaxing, a, a low sedation level that one would expect to get from potentially a, a therapeutic or a high therapeutic end of an opioid. With the stimulant effect, initially in the literature, I think a around the early 20th century, there were reports that it had a, a cocaine-like stimulant effect. Now, those have been kind of retracted uh, and have been now more compared to a, a caffeine-like effect. Uh, if somebody were ingesting like two cups of coffee or something like that, it's not comparable to that of amphetamines or like. Darshan Singh has done some research in that regard uh, and found that uh, methamphetamine users, which is uh, a large population, unfortunately, in Malaysia, are not likely to switch to Kratom for their uh, stimulant use uh, from methamphetamine. Uh, so once again, it doesn't provide the same stimulant effects as you would get from methamphetamine, but rather a smoother or not as uh, intoxicating level of stimulant effect. Now, that being said, uh, we always have to consider the inter-individual variability in effects. There are people who are very sensitive to drugs uh, versus others who are not as sensitive to drugs. Uh, and then we have enzyme expression level variability and all of these things. So there might be an individual who is very sensitive to these effects and others who are not as sensitive. And I guess it's worth pointing out that people might be sensitive to some drugs, but not others. So it's not necessarily you're sensitive to all drugs. It might be that some you are and some you're not. Correct. Um, it was interesting what you were saying about it uh, sort of being compared to cocaine, but then sort of thinking maybe it's more like caffeine. Perhaps it's sort of more similar to chewing a coca leaf than it is to snorting a line of cocaine. Yes, uh, I think that's a, that's a good comparison uh, because the comparison was made at a time when uh, snorting cocaine was obviously not really something that people did all that often. Uh, so maybe it was actually comparison to more of a coca leaf chewing, which is still traditionally done in Peru and, and other uh, regions in South America. If people take a very high dose of Kratom, they can experience dizziness or nausea, can't they? Is that right? Yes, that is definitely. And that was... In our survey, it was uh, the most common adverse effects were nausea, vomiting, gastrointestinal, uh, constipation, which is common with opioids, uh, that were the most common adverse effects that people reported from it. And in terms of then longer term effects, do we know much about those? So 
Do we think Kratom might be dependence forming, for example? There are definitely reports in the literature uh, that Kratom can lead to tolerance and dependence. How this relates to the dose, we don't know yet. In doses that are usually recommended, one to three grams per dose, a majority of people that use Kratom currently in, in at least the surveys that were conducted to date and in, in the traditional setting in Malaysia, uh, we know that most people use it unless they chew it, uh, if they use it more for the analgesic pain-relieving effects. They use it in the range of one to three or five grams per dose. Uh, and that's when they usually stop. They don't go higher. Uh, and they use it between two to four times per day. That's usually how often it is being used. Above five grams per day, that's when you also see uh, a rapid increase in adverse effects or a higher risk of adverse effects, let's say that way. Um, and, and you notice that, that there might be an increased risk for tolerance development and, and also the risk for dependence development. What has been seen, and Darshan Singh investigated that recently, is that the dependence that develops to Kratom, and that has once again been shown, he conducted that study in Malaysia, and it was not as severe as for opioid use disorders. Uh, and therefore, uh, patients that were uh, misusing, abusing Kratom or de developed a dependence on Kratom uh, didn't perceive their dependence as as severe. And usually within three to seven days, the uh, withdrawal symptoms would subside. And what kind of symptoms might people experience in terms of withdrawal? Uh, so what has been reported so far is agitation, gastrointestinal uh, upset, sleep uh, disturbances, uh, general mood swings comparable to opioid withdrawal, but on a much milder level. So really the, the agitation is one of the primary things that somebody gets agitated, uh, might be more aggressive uh, or easily aggravated, uh, and the gastrointestinal symptoms, diarrhea might be present, and then headaches uh, are very common as well. Seizures have not been reported uh, as far as I'm aware, although one should monitor depending on how high the dose was before. The seizure threshold may be lowered, so if somebody uh, had any underlying conditions that might make them more prone to seizure disorders, uh, then that should be monitored. Uh, there might be an increase in heart rate and blood pressure as well. Uh, so that should be monitored. And aside from that, nausea, vomiting as well uh, can occur. And in terms of any other long-term effects, do we know if people are putting themselves at risk by using Kratom heavily over a long period of time? So I think the, the one thing that needs to be pointed out, anybody who wants to use Kratom, either for recreational uses or for self-treatment of any condition whatsoever, no matter if it's a diagnosed or non-diagnosed condition, uh, should definitely be aware that it can cause drug interactions. Uh, we are not certain to what extent these drug interactions uh, may contribute to potential fatalities, uh, because there are case reports where Kratom was reported in conjunction with the use of other drugs in fatalities. So that is something that people need to be aware of. And the best course of action 
in these situations is, especially if somebody takes already an opioid or any other drug that has CNS activity, including alcohol, it's important to, to consult with their healthcare providers in these situations before taking Kratom. And especially if these Kratom products are purchased over the internet, because some of these products may either be contaminated, adulterated, uh, some of them do not contain adequate information on the label, and you might not even know what you're getting as a consumer, especially if we have something like uh, something that is contaminated with fentanyl analogs or other opioids that obviously puts the consumer at an imminent risk uh, of overdoses. And that is a risk that they need to be acutely aware of. For people who do use Kratom over long periods of time, there have been some case reports of jaundice and psychosis, haven't there? Is that strong evidence that it might cause that or is that quite weak? Um, so there have been instances and reports. Um, so far, we only have case reports on that. So we, we can tell for certain if there are other underlying factors, uh, if actually Kratom was causative in that or if the person already had an underlying disorder, and it was a bystander effect that Kratom contributed to it and wasn't actually the causative agent in it. We need more information to contribute to that at this point. We've said this on the podcast many times before, that just because there's a lack of evidence doesn't mean it's not the case, but it just means that we can't tell either way at the moment. That there have been these case studies might indicate a higher risk, but we can't say for certain right now. So should we come on to some of the myths and misconceptions that exist around Kratom? The first one that I've got is um, Kratom is an opioid. And it wasn't me who came up with this myth. It was someone very high up in the US Food and Drug Administration, the commissioner, in fact, wasn't it? Yes, the former um, commissioner, Dr. Gottlieb, who I regard as a, a very competent person. But on this one... Uh, he relied on data, uh, the so-called face model, uh, which is a computational model that was used, uh, which uh, basically is an in silico model, so a computer model, which you use. You have the opioid receptor modeled in the computer, uh, and then you model the active pocket where the, the binding pocket where a molecule would bind to the receptor. And this is a great way to start your drug discovery pathway if you want to see how does your new drug actually interact with the target that you wanted to interact with. But it doesn't tell you much about what happens afterwards because you cannot look at the complexity of the organism or even the cell. What does the cell do afterwards after the drug binds to that target, to that receptor, to the opioid receptor. So the first part of the statement that mitragynin, 7-hydroxymitragynin, and other alkaloids present in kratom bind to opioid receptors is true. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. And I think nobody actually wants to argue about that. But that they are just like opioids that is, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many of my colleagues that I work with, is not correct, or it needs to be refined, let's say it that way. Because what happens after mitragynin, 7-hydroxymitragynin, and other, uh, at least mitragynin, 7-hydroxymitragynin, we know for sure, bind to it is that there are two pathways that are activated in response to classical opioids, because the, the opioid receptor is what we call a G-protein receptor. 
Uh, and I don't want to go too much into depth about that. But one pathway is the traditional one that everybody kind of not everybody, but most of us who, who go to medical school or our healthcare professionals know about, it, it's like the, the secondary uh, messenger pathway that leads to some kind of intracellular activity. But then there is a second pathway uh, called the beta arrestin 2 pathway uh, that I actually never had heard of before I studied Kratom. And this one is not activated by mitragynin and 7 or not recruited by um, mitragynin and 7-hydroxymitragynin. And it has been shown that that second pathway in particular seems to be associated with many of the adverse outcomes, uh, respiratory depression, gastrointestinal side effects, and even dependence uh, to some level. In addition to that, we also have to consider that mitragynin and 7-hydroxymitragynin are considered partial agonists, uh, so they do not exert the same high activity as morphine or heroin were, would exert, uh, are exerting at uh, the opioid receptors. I'm just going to try and see if I've understood that and explain it back to you. So what you're saying is just because something acts on the opioid receptors, it doesn't automatically make it an opioid. It's the effect that it has on the organism that's consumed it that defines whether it's an opioid or not. Correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So... Myth number two, the different coloured veins in the leaves of the kratom plant have different effects or come from different plants or there's something special about the veins of the leaves being different colours. We had a symposium uh, in February of this year in Orlando at the University of Florida. We had quite a few folks from Malaysia at that symposium and uh, we were arguing, not arguing, uh, we were actually asking them. So what is it with the different veins? And they were asking us, what is it about the different veins? Because they don't distinguish between the vein color. Uh, they don't have green, white, or red veins, uh, kratom. They don't have different trees with different vein colors. Uh, what they noticed is that during development, during maturation of the leaves, you might notice the vein color changing uh, over time. So you might actually see white veins, green veins, red veins on the same tree. They don't distinguish between those. They just collect uh, the leaves uh, and, and that's it. So at this point, we do not know if there is actually any differentiation uh, between those. What we do know is that there are no different species of kratom that would exert a, a different effect. And it has not been researched, to my knowledge, I couldn't find anything in the literature, uh, that there are, based on the alkaloid content of mitragynin or 7-hydroxymitragynin, a distinction in the stimulant or opioid-like effects uh, between red, white, or green-veined uh, kratom. Okay, so the last myth that I have, we've kind of already touched on this, but it's that kratom consumption can lead to death. That's a, a tough one. Every death is a tragedy, obviously. And uh, if kratom has been detected, I don't want to dismiss that, that kratom might not have played a role potentially uh, in, in that death. The issue is uh, that the way that we currently detect kratom primarily is through mitragynin alone. Mitragynin uh, measured in the blood is kind of all over the place currently. Uh, so from the few 
medical examiner reports, the, the autopsy reports, the uh, tox reports that we have, it, it's kind of all over the place, the, the blood concentrations. Sometimes we have lower blood concentrations uh, than uh, the one pharmacokinetic study in humans that we have. Uh, and then we have exceedingly high concentrations that are would be very hard to achieve by just ingesting kratom as a as as plant material as a leaf material what is missing is the causative link between kratom ingestion and the fatality in addition we have to recognize that in a vast majority of cases i think except for one case so far other substances were present in uh, post-mortem in in these fatalities uh, so either it was a benzodiazepine, it was uh, alcohol, it was another opioid. Once again, linking kratom directly causatively to the death of the individual is not justified at this point. It might have been a contributing factor, but we have to realize that we have other substances on the market if we look at loperamide. Uh, which is an opioid which is used uh, to treat diarrhea uh, when we travel, for example. We have acetaminophen uh, or paracetamol, uh, as it's called elsewhere, uh, which causes liver damage and death uh, in, in thousands, if not tens of thousands of people a year, no matter if it's intentional or for children in many cases unintentional because it's additive it's a, it's a combination product in so many different preparations. I don't believe that, uh, at this point at least, I don't see the evidence uh, presented sufficiently that links the causation of a fatality to kratom exposure solely and as the causative agent. And it's been, um, there was some deaths in Sweden that were linked to kratom, but that was a substance called Krypton, I think, is what it's known as, isn't it? Which is kratom mixed with a substance that's um, related to tramadol. Correct. Is that right? The active metabolite of tramadol, or desmethyl tramadol, that was obviously intentional. It was not sold as kratom even. It was already sold as a product that was sold really as a recreational product. And, and even the, the, the report itself, the publication itself stated that odesmothal tramadol was found there and was likely the, the causative contributor to the deaths of, uh, of these individuals. Okay, so moving away from the myths now, does Kratom have any medical benefit? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. The research that is currently being conducted, so actually the first time that uh, Mitragynin was trying to be patented was back in the 1970s. And it never really went through. I don't know, because it was a natural product or there were other promising candidates. I don't, I don't know necessarily why that was the case. Uh, the patent was withdrawn. It is my belief that uh, as a partial agonist that does not recruit beta-arrestin, it has promise as a new drug that targets opioid receptors in a manner that classical opioids currently do not. Does kratom as a, as a leaf extract have uh, medical benefits? I, I believe so too. 
I don't think that necessarily all of the activity uh, that is currently ascribed to it, all of the pharmacological benefits, all of the medical benefits that are derived from it are solely based on the alkaloids. I think there is more to it, especially when we look at anxiety disorders, the antidepressant effects potentially. I believe there is more to the leaf extract than just the alkaloids. Uh, so I think it is worth exploring both the leaf extract as a whole, as well as um, potentially using mitragynin um, as a kind of scaffold, as a lead structure in the development of a new drug. The issue at the moment that we're facing is we have a relatively significant kratom user population that is already using the leaf extract. If they're using it to mitigate or replace uh, or self-treat their opioid use disorder, and we take kratom away by placing it into Schedule 1 in the U.S. or into, into some restricted category uh, in the U.K. or somewhere else, what is happening to those people who are successfully treating their opioid use disorder? Uh, I understand that there should be a, a medical provider involved in, in helping those people treat uh, their substance use disorder. Uh, I agree that that should be done under medical supervision, and I encourage everybody who is currently using Kratom for mitigation of a substance use disorder to consult with their medical provider, uh, because that is the best way forward. Usually only using Kratom or any other medication by itself is not the best treatment approach, especially if you do it by yourself. You, the therapy in combination with a drug is, is the best way to really solve the, the problem uh, and get away from it long term. I think that uh, Kratom has a use if it is used responsibly. That is my, my opinion. <laughs> okay, I mean, that kind of brings me on to the last question that I have, which is what don't we know about Kratom? Sort of what kind of research is ongoing? What are the questions that people are interested in in relation to Kratom? Well, we actually know quite few things about Kratom. Uh, so in regards to its dependence and abuse liability, uh, we know very little about it. Uh, still. Uh, we know that there is a dependence uh, potential for it, uh, but we don't know exactly if it is mitragynin who is, which is responsible for it, or if it's 7-hydroxymitragynin. I hinted earlier at this uh, when I said that we don't actually know if 7-hydroxymitragynin is present in the native extract, in the native leaf material, or if it is a, a product that is generated during the drying process or, or something along those lines. Uh, so that is still something that we we after. Uh, we don't know much about the other alkaloids uh, that are present in the leaf extract and in, in, in the leaf material. Uh, and that is something that might help us to figure out, is mitragynin actually the best lead structure for a new drug uh, to be developed? Uh, or is the, the overall effects of Kratom really an interplay of all of these different alkaloids and potentially other compounds that are present in the leaf extract. A lot of questions remain unanswered at this point that we still can look into uh, and that still need to be explored, all under the assumption that kratom uh, and mitragynin and 7-hydroxymitragynin are not being scheduled at this point. Well, it sounds like it's quite an exciting field to be working in anyway. Kratom is, is definitely exciting uh, to, to conduct research. And the many people that I have been 
working with has been really a, a pleasure and blessing. And also the email exchange that I get and the emails that I receive from regular folks, so to say, that describe their experiences with Kratom has really humbled me and taught me that there is so much more that we can learn about Kratom. Well, that seems like a great place to end it. So Dr. Oliver Grundman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And there we go. Research into Kratom is ongoing, as Oliver said. So watch this space. Say Why to Drugs will be back in two weeks' time. In the next episode, I'll be joined by Dr. Amir England to talk about cannabidiol, one of the components that makes up cannabis, and one that has been appearing on our high streets in recent months. Thanks, as always, to Adam Richardson for the artwork, to Jim Murray for the music, and to the Distraction Pieces Network for generally being lovely boys. See you all in a couple of weeks. Bye! A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.